Hey everyone, this is a Barclay Damon live broadcast of the CyberSip, practical talk about cybersecurity. I'm your host, Kevin Sapansky. Let's talk. Welcome back, everyone. I'm really pleased to have Dean Mecklowitz of TechRisk joining us on today's episode. Dean is the co-founder of TechRisk. And Dean, remind us a little bit about what TechRisk does. So TechRisk looks at cyber wellness of small and medium-sized businesses. So the, the issue that we see is that there's a cyber divide between the haves and the have-nots. The haves are those companies that have internal IT departments, perhaps they have chief information security officers, they have large budgets, they have people that understand cyber, and then you have the have-nots. These are generally companies, say, less than 200 employees. Oftentimes, they have no internal IT. Oftentimes, they have no chief information security officers. Oftentimes, they outsource IT as well, and they don't really have a lot of expertise. So what we do is we help diagnose what do they need to be doing in order to get them out, outside the crosshairs of the cyber criminals, what do they need to do to become insurable for cyber insurance, and if need be, what controls they need to put in place without breaking the budget, taking tons of time, requiring them to manage it, because they just want these problems solved. They, they don't want a copy of War and Peace. Uh, they don't want homework assignments. You know, their, their favorite thing to do is talk to a cyber person. Second favorite thing to do is talk to a lawyer. And third thing, <laughs> favorite thing to do is talk to uh, a cyber yeah. professional. Not. They want to run their day-to-day -day business and they want to be pragmatic and get it done quickly. And no, I think that's so important. I think today's cyber professionals would do well to appreciate that the number one priority of any business is getting the job done day-to-day. Uh, -day. And data privacy is important, but it's not as important as providing the products and services that you're providing to, to make ends meet. So speaking of data privacy, we're sitting here and we're actually recording in the third week of January. This is Data Privacy Week. And I just want to pick on healthcare as an example, because I think that we know that healthcare providers place a high priority on data privacy. Their patients demand it. The law demands it. We, we could talk about HIPAA in another episode. But I wanted to share with you a piece, it's actually a study that came out in late December 2022. It was the JAMA Health Forum and essentially took a look at ransomware attacks on healthcare providers over roughly a five-year period, January 2016 to December 2021. And I wanted to share some of this report with you and get your reaction. So we hear this year that in 2022, ransomware attacks were down, but that may be partially true, but long-term trend from 2016 through today is upward. So with that in mind, from 2016 to December, 2021, there were 374 ransomware attacks on US healthcare delivery organizations exposing the PHI, the protected health information of about 42 million Americans. Almost half of those ransomware attacks, this is where it gets interesting, almost half of those attacks disrupted the delivery of healthcare with common disruptions, including electronic system downtime, cancellations of scheduled care, and this one, which is most alarming, ambulance diversion downtime. So, 
looking at these attacks, what the JAMA Health Forum reports, uh, and according to this study, is that these ransomware attacks exposed the PHI of more patients. They were more likely to lead to reporting requirements. So you suffered a ransomware attack, your data was accessed or exfiltrated. You were going to have to report that not only to patients, but to federal and state authorities. And those attacks were alarmingly, I think, associated with delays or cancellations of scheduled care. Drew, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I'm not convinced they're going down. Uh when it's only growing by, I don't know the exact percentages, but if it's only growing by 100% versus 150%, it's still really terrible. Right. Uh, the average cost of a breach of $150 a record times 40-some million records, it's a, it's a massive problem still. So though I think those statistics can be somewhat misleading, the cyber criminals will use whatever mechanism they want, they, they need to make money, uh, and whether it's ransomware, whether it's, uh, business email compromise to compromise how you transfer money within your organization. It's still a massive problem that needs to be addressed. Right. So, and it's a massive problem in the healthcare industry, but in many other industries as well. Um, all right. So what do we do about it? Are there security controls that every organization, whether you're healthcare, financial, professional services, are there controls that, <clears throat> excuse me, that every organization should be thinking about, uh, regardless of what products or services you provide? Absolutely, great, great question, Kevin. So probably the best way to do this is just give some examples, because the challenge is a lot of employees, or a lot of businesses don't understand their exact risks. So we need to understand what those risks are. Uh, remember, these companies don't have unlimited budgets. Uh, the enemy of, of good is perfect. They need to put stuff in place yeah. and it has to be fit for purpose because you're not going to a billion dollar hospital organization is not going to have the same controls as a 50 person local physician's office. So that's, that's super important. Good point. Yep. So just by way of example. So one of the, the some of the challenges are that we have a, a workforce that's working remotely. Uh, obviously doctors wouldn't be working remotely or maybe they are actually there's telemedicine now. So there's a lot of remote working. And a lot of folks don't understand the problems of working remotely. In the past, we've been protected by behind these large corporate firewalls that prevent bad data from getting even to the computers. Now imagine, Kevin, if I ask you, well, how's your home network configured? You're like, what? That I have no idea. Well, right. Nobody right. Or you're working out of the local coffee shop. You know, is that Wi-Fi secure? Or is there a cyber criminal with a, with a rogue hotspot sitting in his backpack next to you? Or you're working out of the, the hotel? Uh, or, you know, any, uh, any place where there's Wi-Fi, how do you know it's safe? So right. VPNs are absolutely required to protect that data. So by way of example, this just happened a few weeks ago, uh, a person connected via their phone to a hotspot in a hotel. They accessed their Coinbase account. They entered their password. The MFA, um, the MFA multi-factor authentication uh, challenge came back. So they entered the six numbers that gets texted you. Now the criminal has the password and the MFA code. So now they have the access token. They're in that system in 30 seconds and they transfer $400,000 out of that in, in 10, 30 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, so folks don't understand that even when you're working anywhere, you need to be using a VPN, it's pretty simple. So, you know, when we talk about these controls, 
it's not nation state hacking that's causing these problems. Yeah, okay, that can be it, but it's more much simpler. Yeah. It could just be as simple as the hacker going to the local coffee shop outside of our corporate headquarters in the lobby and just waiting for people to give them the information. Yeah. That's so, a simple example. Right. No, that's a great example. So you're remote working. You've got to be entering your system through a VPN portal. Otherwise, you're putting yourself at risk. What other kinds of security controls should we all be thinking about today, Drew? I'll try not to get too techy, but there's a lot of misconceptions out there. You can get too techy if you all want. Right, right, right. So, Max, when you talk to, to people, they're saying, you know, my Mac is immune to viruses. Absolute that's, nonsense. That's what they say. Absolute right. nonsense. We find um, when we look at employees in a company, if they have Max, 90% of the employees have no antivirus protection at all. 90%. When you look at the PC users, we find that the antivirus protections they're using, they don't update them. There's like 20 to 25% that don't update them properly, or they're using whatever comes free on the machine, like Windows Defender. To top it all off, they're not using antivirus. To top it all off, standard antivirus, which are no longer sufficient. They rely on you to download what they call signatures. So, you know, if there's a virus, what does that look like and detect it? But the challenge with that, of course, is that there's a new virus that hasn't been characterized yet, it'll miss it. So right. the insurance companies now, all the cyber insurance companies as a prerequisite are requiring what we call endpoint detection response. Think of that as antivirus on steroids, doesn't require employee interaction. Uh, it's if a piece of software that's malware or, or Trojan or a virus is trying to access sensitive areas of the computer, it'll stop in its tracks. So EDR is an absolute requirement, you know, if you're if on your computers for running a business, not only to protect you, but it's also a prerequisite to get cyber nowadays. Can I just stop you there? I'm glad you mentioned EDR because I wanted to ask you about that. And here's how I think of it. Tell me if I'm, if I'm close. I think of it like my home and making sure that at every door, at every window, at every means of ingress, there is a guard standing there letting me know who's trying to get in, how they're trying to get in, when they're trying to get in. And then further, even inside the home, at every door, every entryway, every kitchen cabinet, every drawer, there's someone standing by letting me know whether someone's trying to get in, who it is, how they're trying. And in every case, those threats are raised to the level of the information security team. And if possible, they're neutralized. Is that a, is that a good metaphor to think about EDR? That's great. As well as if that person is going into a room they're not supposed to be in, once they're in your house, it'll say, wait, wait a minute, they're in this room, they're not supposed to be even in there, so I'll stop that. So great metaphor. Right. So even if I'm an employee, so, so we're mixing metaphors, but even if I'm, it's my house, uh, if there's a room I'm not supposed to go in, I'm not supposed to go in my teenage daughter's room, <clears throat> even though I own the house and that's my daughter, I'm, if, if I get to the door and I'm ready to, you know, I try to enter, the red flag is going to go off so that people know, oh, dad's trying to get into my room. That's not supposed to happen. Absolutely. Perfect. Great analogy. And that's really a, uh, it leads me to the concept of, of uh, zero trust architecture. That's really a, a form of zero trust, isn't it? I mean, we used to think of the parameter of security being the wall between our own organization and the outside world. But increasingly, 
we are asked to think about zero trust architecture or a system of controls that does not assume that anyone, including your own employees, is trustworthy unless they demonstrate that they are. Uh, can you walk us through that? And what do you think of, of zero trust? Yeah, so absolutely, right? There's, so think of it as layers, right? There's layers of security we just talked about, so that's, that's one piece of it. But also think of some of the recent breaches that happened, like LastPass, it's a password vault. So password vaults have the keys to the kingdom. They have all the passwords that you get into your systems. But what they've done is a zero trust architecture is that nobody can get into those vaults, even if you get into their organization. So another layer of protection is there because that first layer could, could break down for whatever reason. So you need another layer and another layer and a layer after that to fully protect yourself. And you can't trust anybody, not because they're necessarily untrustworthy people, but people click on things all the time. People do things wrong all the time. There's behaviors that aren't safe for cyber um, that they're doing, and you'll never train people not to do that. It's, it's almost impossible, or it is, it is impossible to ensure that people aren't going to click on something accidentally and cause a problem. So you need to design your architecture, the zero trust architecture, to, with that in mind, that people will do things wrong all the time, either inadvertently or just in, out of ignorance, every single day, time and time again. So you're protecting your organization, not just from the external threat actors, but from your own employees who may make mistakes as we all do. I, I think when you look at cybersecurity, employee behaviors are the reason that if you look at the loss ratios of the, of the insurance companies, they're not really going down. Even though they're putting all these things in place, they're coming up with these 20 page applications, right. asking more and more questions and they're not going down. And why is that? It's because the behaviors of the people in their organization aren't matching with what they're putting on the apps. Therefore, you need to have more layers of protection because things are being done incorrectly. Right. I've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks as we've we've started the new year. And, you know, that as an organization, cybersecurity, the security controls get better and better. I think the threat actors are learning from that and they're saying, well, why should I take the time and resources necessary to hack into your system when I can get you to open the door for me? And that's where the employees come in. The employees are the first line of defense, but paradoxically the weakest link in an organization's cybersecurity these days. Absolutely. So take passwords, for instance, right? When we look at breach data, so you can look at breach data if you have a web if you have a dark web monitoring tool and we look at our clients and to see if they're if they've been breached and when and sometimes you see their passwords and plain text in there and you see the passwords are their spouse's name their, yeah. their kid's name uh, birthdays and they get real clever and use their pet's name with a number on the back side of it and we see that 92 percent of these passwords are just terrible right? so you know first line of defense is the password and they're terrible in most cases common passwords are used uh, they're storing them incorrectly in files called password.doc on their desktop. Uh, they're using common passwords. They're using simple ones, and they don't understand that you know those simple passwords with modern password cracking tools could be instantly hacked. Let alone if they're using the same password that's been exposed in the dark web that people can try in other other locations. There's even an attack right. called a credential stuffing attack. That's exactly that. Oh, look at look at Kevin's password. Uh, we're going to try that at his critical systems. Um, and, and, and variations of that. So there's huge problems 
and you have to protect against that. People will use lousy passwords as it Yeah. Happens. And I think that's, that's our next security control talking about passwords. Let's stay on this for a second. I've done some thinking about this and I think, uh, it certainly makes sense to have as long a password as possible. That's probably the most important criterion, but then you have a combination of large and small caps, letters, symbols. You can make your password stronger. You can anonymize your password, as I like to call it, so that you don't have proper names or names of your pets or your children in there. But my 17-year-old son always argues with me about this point because he says, yeah, dad, you can have the strongest password in the world, but if somebody hacks into your system and gets access to everyone's password, then what do you have? What's your response to that? Help me respond to my son who's who's skeptical about the the use of even a super strong smart password. Yeah, great question. So in some, he's both right and wrong. So where he's right is if people store their password, yeah, believe it or not, a 17-year-old is right. I, it's, this is news to me. Yeah, yeah, right, right, I have, uh, yeah. So if they store their passwords to Google Chrome, the, the, right? and they use their personal Gmail that's not protected with multi-factor authentication, he's right, that could be hacked. And it just happened to Cisco three or four months ago. That's the exact mechanism they attack, where the passwords were stored into Google Chrome. Google Chrome was logged in with somebody's personal Gmail. That personal Gmail was not protected with multi-factor. Boom, Dale. However, where he's incorrect is that there's safe ways to store passwords. So they're called password vaults, for example. Mm -hmm. So a password vault is an encrypted area where you, nobody can get in beside yourself with that password. If you don't use multi-factor authentication with it, he's right, but you need to use, with a password vault, you need to use multi-factor authentication. So now there's two doors to go through, right? Your password and you got to approve access via your phone or some other mechanism, then it's protected. All the good password vaults nowadays are encrypted with 256-bit encryption. So you, you can't get in unless you go through the front door. It's impossible. And nobody but yourself has access to that information. So there are safe ways to save them. The unsafe ways to save them are your browsers, you know, the file password.xls on your, on your desktop. Uh, you know, those kind of things are completely unsafe, but a proper password vault with multi-factor authentication is personally safe. So that leads to a fifth security control that is very hotly talked about these days, and that's MFA or multi-factor authentication. I was watching a webinar a week or two ago and they invited questions. And I asked a question about passwords and it was a very effective webinar, two very experienced uh, young guys who clearly knew their stuff. But when I asked them about strong passwords, it was interesting. They said two things. They said, first, the most important criterion for a strong password is length. And the second thing they said is, you know, as, as important as that is, maybe the best way to guard against a weak password is to have multi-factor authentication. Now, they're apples and oranges, but does that make sense to you? And how can MFA get around any possible password weaknesses that you or your employees may have? Right. So, so the both are important because, you know, a mechanism is, first of all, like this, the Cisco hack, they got in. Uh, they were able to get the, the password to the Cisco VPN, and then they did what's called a uh, MFA persistence attack. They, they continually said, hey, you need to approve this. You need to approve this access. You need to approve this access. And that employee either approved it internally or actually approved it on purpose or it was coupled with a 
a phone call from the hacker saying, hey, yeah, this is the IT help desk, please approve it, right? So, so by that password being initially exposed, that led them to be exposed to an MFA persistent attack. However, MFA is the number one control you need to put in place for any important data. Uh, otherwise, you're at risk because there's only one door that needs to be gone through. And, and, but both of those together provide a very effective barrier. Now, it's not a cure-all. You still can be hacked. We, we, we started this conversation out today with how you can be hacked via a man-in-the-middle attack without using a VPN. But both of those things together are extremely important. The other thing that we see is that people will say they have MFA. Like when you talk to a business, they'll say, yes, we have MFA on email. Then you ask, well, is it enforced? And they're like, what do you mean? Well, it, or, does everybody have to use it? Well, no, but they're using it. And when they check, they find out that, you know, drum roll please, 20, 30, 40, 50% of the people aren't using it. So it needs to be enforced because it's mistakenly thought it's in place when it's not. Very common. So we've talked about five security controls, VPN, antivirus protection, endpoint detection and response, passwords, including storage of passwords and MFA or multi-factor authentication. I want to circle back to a couple of other things, but before I do, besides those security controls, are there any other low-hanging fruit controls that everyone should be thinking about no matter what industry they are in? Yes. So here, here's a free one. So nothing, you don't have to buy anything, just encryption. So, so laptops, you know, they have a disk encryption on, on PCs. It's called BitLocker. On Max, it's called FileVault. And what it does is encrypts it. So you say, well, why do I need that? I have a password on my computer. Well, the reason is, is that to take a hard drive out of a computer takes four minutes. And the reason it takes four minutes because it takes you three minutes to find the small screwdriver. All the data, if it's not encrypted, can be compromised. Next thing we'll hear is, well, you know, we're not saving any information to, to our, our hard drives. All the employees are supposed to uh, save it to, you know, whatever, you know, Google Drive or SharePoint or whatever. Some do, some don't. However, a lot of those same folks save their passwords into their browser, which we've already talked about. The point is, if your disk isn't encrypted, all that information, including any password you store in the browser, would be accessible by the hacker in minutes. So disk encryption, it's free, BitLocker or FileVault, just to do it. And by the way, in healthcare, if your computer was stolen, your laptop, and you can't prove that that hard drive is encrypted, that's a, that's considered a breach under heading to the runner. If you can't rule it out, yep. then you have to assume there was access, yep. and the then you have to report. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, report it as a breach. Right, yep. right. That's free. Um, right. There's other ones that, that are super important, right? So we haven't really talked about business email compromise protections, right? So business email, um, a lot of people are, are, are hacked via this way. They they click on phishing emails, which is somebody sending a, a fake email to to fool you into voluntarily giving your information away, not knowingly, but voluntarily. So having the appropriate business email protections like uh, and you know enterprise level uh, email filtering, so those don't even get to the employees to click on in the first place is super important, right? Things that block viruses, again, another, another layer of defense, things that block phishing attacks, things that use AI to uncover, you know, is that is that a fake attack or not, right? Uh, so that's super important. Business email compromise protections, if you ask me, is one of the most important because everybody's using business email and a lot of folks just don't pay attention. But, no, go ahead. Sorry. I was about to give you an example, Kevin. 
Yeah, go ahead. Run phishing sure. tests of, of clients, right? We run one and nobody falls for it and everybody's like, you know, clapping and high-fiving. Yeah, our employees are mm -hmm. well-trained. Then you want to run the, uh, I don't know, the door dash on a Thursday night. Um, guess what? 15% click on it. Or if you run the Amazon one right before Christmas, 15% yes. click on it. Yes. So no matter how much training you do, you find that people will click on things who are just not paying attention. Uh, and it's something that that's part of it. It's not out of character. It's like, oh, yeah, I just ordered DoorDash. I'm going to click on that. Or, yeah. or, or my kids must have ordered it, so I'm going to click on it. And boom, they, they disinfected their computer. Let me, let me ask you about one other security control that you just alluded to. And it's kind of a trick control, but it's, it's important. I think it may be the most important control, and that is employee training. Um, I hate saying this, but it is true. You are only as good as your weakest link. And as employees, we are among the weakest links. We are the ones that the threat actors can fool with those spear phishing attacks. So, Drew, talk to us a little bit about uh, what a good employee training program should look like. Great, great question. So I don't know if you've ever gotten a ticket. Uh, you know, I don't get everyone off. And I like five, six years yeah. ago, got one because I was on my phone, but I digress. And then you have to take that training course. It takes four hours. And it, it was so painful and so horrible. And all you could do was fast forward. And if you didn't fast forward and, and click the button, it, it, it actually made you start over again. It was just terrible. Yeah. So, so first of all, you got to realize that employees don't really want to do it. So it has to be short, effective, five minutes, seven minutes, maybe. It can't be like watching paint dry. It should be done monthly, but some people you know, they can't really figure out how to do that. So at least quarterly is, is good. Monthly is better. But it has to be short, effective, and, and really the point of, of can't be techie. It has to be entertaining a little bit, but really has to get to the point of some of the things we've just talked about. So that's that's number one piece of it. The second piece of it uh, is, well, of course, it's accountability. Do people take it or not? Because sure. again, people won't take it unless they're forced to. We, we can't avoid that here at Barclay Damon, because if I don't take it, I get a reminder every single day until I do. And I don't want to be the last person to go through the employee training. I have no excuse. You're right, right. Except that you're an expert and, and you know it all. But uh, but again, everybody's an expert. So we, we need to be taking yeah. it because there are new threats. The second part of a good pro training program is what they call phishing testing. So phishing testing is the business or the company that you've hired sends out fake emails, trying to fool employees to clicking on it. And when they do click on it, it's a teaching moment. And some employees are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got clicked. And it really opens their eyes. Some, they click every week and there's no helping them. Uh, but, 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 but at least you know who those are so you, you can keep a, a closer eye on them. But those two components are, are super important part of a, of a cyber awareness training program. Now, you've given us a lot of great ideas and things to think about, and these are critical security controls. Um, and I know we're running out of time, so we'll have to leave it there, but I'd love to have you back on another episode to talk more about some of these targeted attacks and how we can anticipate and make sure that we don't fall into the traps. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, love to, love to. There's a lot more. You can go on all day about this. and. But there's, there's a lot to it, for sure. Yeah. Well, Dean Meklowitz from TechRisk, thank you so much for joining us this morning on CyberSip. Thank you for joining us. We're back soon with another episode. The CyberSip podcast is available on BarclayDamon.com, YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like, follow, share, and continue to listen.